0: Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a non-spoiler Christian movie podcast where we sit at the table of cinema and eat. Tonight we'll be dining on Riley Stern's The Art of Self-Defense. When I saw the trailer for The Art of Self-Defense a few months ago, my wife and I immediately went, we have to see this movie. Jesse Eisenberg, martial arts, dry humor, complex characters, we needed this movie in our lives so badly we were counting down weekends for its release. Then I learned I would be away on a trip the weekend it premiered talk about a bummer. Knowing it was an independent film, we worried it would be out of theaters before I came home. Thankfully, it still had a few screenings at a nearby AMC, so we snagged our tickets and went out on a weeknight. Totally worth it. So let's not waste any time. I couldn't wait to see this movie, and I was overjoyed to learn it was appropriate enough to cover here, so let's get into it. Casey Davies, performed by Jesse Eisenberg, is afraid of men. It's that simple. He doesn't commune well with his male co-workers, He lives alone with his little Dutch hound and is mugged one evening on his walk home from the store. He's tired of feeling weak and getting a gun takes too long, so he joins a nearby karate studio under the training of the enigmatic sensei, played by Alessandro Nivola, a man's man who teaches him what it's like to be strong. In Casey's pursuit of becoming what he fears, he learns to punch with his feet and kick with his fists, but might be learning things about masculinity he hasn't bargained for. The Art of Self-Defense is rated R for violence, sexual content, graphic nudity, and language. The violence is not pervasive, but you can expect about as much as you would from a dojo setting. That said, there are sequences that are a little frightening. There's frequent blood for the second half of the movie, and it can be quite shocking, as well as brief moments of gore. The sexual content is male talk among coworkers is on the nose, as well as sexist and misogynistic remarks at times. The graphic nudity is one brief scene of full male nudity as a bunch of men are entering a rest period after a training session. The cut is very quick, and any other segments of nudity are of women in magazines, of which a character takes home for personal use, and one sequence later with a computer screen. All four or so of these sequences are brief and beg the question, why even do them? The language is par for the course for an R-rated film, although my wife and I barely remember any of it, and seems like there was only one sequence that had a few F-bombs in it. Apart from all that, the film isn't oppressive, at least not to us, as we're both fans of dry, dark, alternative humor. It's sort of our go-to as comedy is concerned, and we both had a real blast. I think the best way to explain the humor in self-defense is like that of a person telling you quite literally what's funneling through their mind at any moment then choosing to say it in the most obtuse and obvious manner. There's no beating around the bush, and lines are delivered with precise accuracy and perfect timing. It's as though every breath were paced to eliminate any loss in flow and punctuation. Alessandro Navola spoke in an interview about how difficult it was to perform some of his monologues, of which there are many, simply due to how exact his delivery needed to be. Jesse Eisenberg also delivers lines like his tongue were an exacto knife, but a lot of Alessandro's lines require him to be active. His introduction can be seen in the trailer as he performs an impromptu kata saying that martial arts is like any language, it says something. And in this case, the kata is saying, This weekend, I'm going grocery shopping, and then going to rent a movie. Finished off with a fatality as Sensei imitates the act of ripping a man's heart out. It's amazing. And there's plenty more where that comes from. What seems to make all this work is how everything is played normally. How, despite the guise of reality, the art of self-defense is anything but a normal world. Everyone uses CRT monitors. Nobody has a cell phone. People record video on an analog camera. And yet, the film isn't in a dated world, as you'll see people wearing modern clothing and riding modern vehicles. It's sort of like David Robert Mitchell with It Follows, or even Under the Silver Lake, where the worlds aren't worried about being realistic, they're worried about creating and building the aesthetic of the film. In this case, the aesthetic is quiet, focused, precise, and fun. The film never forgets to have fun, even when there's something shocking or horrifying taking place. I don't think anyone would step away thinking those moments tarnished the good times before and after. In fact, it simply helps to relay that, despite the comedy, these characters are in some seriously dangerous situations. And on that note, it's important to mention that this film isn't trying to be subtle. I mentioned before that dialogue is obtuse, obvious, and I would agree with Riley Stearns who, in an interview, rightly declares his film incredibly unsubtle. And that's fine, because the film is very clear in what it is. And if someone were to step away disappointed at how unsubtle it was, then I think they bought the wrong ticket. The thing Riley evokes greatly throughout the film is the abrasive and infectious power of toxic masculinity. I'm sure you've heard that term before. I'm sure it's been a perturbance, even something you cringe at, and that's okay. What toxic masculinity defines truly is something abhorrent, and the way it's defined is this. Toxic masculinity is a sinful misunderstanding in which it defines manhood around qualities of violence, promiscuity, status, and aggression. It propagates the suppression of emotions to avoid looking weak, unless those emotions feed aggressive tendencies. It adheres to sexuality as a conquest of women, one in which the very act of sex has nothing to do with women, but to do with boosting a man's proverbial high score. It's a mentality that inhibits the opportunity to be vulnerable, as that would be a feminine trait, along with a low libido, both of which exhibit a lack of masculine traits and therefore lessen your status in comparison to other men. Often you'll hear people enraged by the term toxic masculinity, as they believe it's a term that's seeking to strip men of power. They hate that it's a term that undermines men, or that it's a term that's disrespecting men. It's a misandrous term, one that simply seeks to express sexism against men, And while some may use it as a means to unjustly target men, in an academic sense, I would agree it's a necessary term to define what are essentially sinful aspects of manhood, sins that are largely expressed by men. Perhaps the only criticism I can find in the fight against toxic masculinity would be the approach that these things are primarily inherent to men, or that men are the ones who are solely propagating this philosophy. In some cases, they are things embraced by a culture that men then exhibit not necessarily attributes that are being populated by male leaders, who are actively saying, You mustn't cry if you're a man, or hugging is for the weak. Sometimes there's a cultural approach to things we would, in some way, consider to be toxic masculinity. For instance, the need to enhance one's status in comparison to others is a part of toxic masculinity. But not every situation of climbing the corporate ladder is because of toxic masculinity. This can be exhibited briefly in The Art of Self-Defense, as one of the aspects of a dojo is different belts that are awarded to students. Each belt has a corresponding level, and each level comes with new responsibilities. That's not inherently a bad thing, but it's something that toxic masculinity can take advantage of, using it as a footstool to assert dominance on those below you and arrogance in the pursuit of those above you. A hierarchy can breed an aggressive sense of status not only among men, but women as well and to approach a similar culture that regards status as everything and simply denounce it being toxic masculinity, a term reserved near exclusively for the sins of men, would be foolish. In doing so, you may undermine one part of culture that is merely a symptom, not the root cause of the problem. The real problem is the adherence to the hierarchy as the one valuable characteristic of an individual. Not that a man is asserting dominance on the hierarchy, Now, why am I digging so deeply into this? Why use the art of self-defense as a platform to talk about toxic masculinity? Well, cause that's the point of the film. It's both entertaining, shocking, hilarious, and a conversation starter. There are many things present in the film that shine a light on dangerous aspects of toxic masculinity and the abuse of power. It's also aware of the difficult balance between symptom and root cause the questions that one might engage when seeking to solve cultural problems. It's quite fascinating, as the situations within the film paired with the questions it proposes are like things I've noticed as I engage the culture of cinema, let alone the culture right outside my doorstep. As a Christian, we are already doing this when we evangelize properly. We recognize the importance of approaching culture with a light skepticism, to see symptoms and reserve from calling them core issues. To treat a symptom and not the core issue is the equivalent of pulling a tick off your skin. Sure, you got rid of the tick, but give it a few days and you'll have Lyme. Learn about ticks and you realize that the head is rooted into the skin and pulling the tick from the abdomen may split the tick in half, the head still deeply embedded within. Learn about culture and you'll find that some of the issues present are deeply rooted and to approach them incorrectly may have catastrophic consequences. So let's think about it within the context of the art of self-defense. Casey Davies wants to become what intimidates him to help fight against the injustice against him. Sounds a bit like Bruce Wayne, right? Well, it's not so virtuous and what Casey is essentially asking is if I can exhibit qualities of those people who I'm afraid of, maybe they'll respect me. That's not fixing the problem, that's contributing to the problem. That's becoming a part of the very thing that's antagonized him from the get-go. In what way would this be beneficial? Riley Stearns isn't unaware of this. In fact, he feels that it'd be an appropriate response to think of Casey's convictions as somewhat awry. Something isn't quite right, and that's the point. One aspect of the film is to show symptoms of toxic masculinity, the symptoms they can produce such as misogynistic tendencies along with apathetic attitudes, and one man's incorrect way of fighting these qualities. In a way, there should be a sense of conviction over this. Now, I'll admit, I wanted to see this movie not only for karate and dry humor, but because I sympathize a lot with Casey Davies' plight, most notably a fear of other men. And that's such a strange thing to admit to, for multiple reasons. I'm admitting not only to a weakness of mine, but an inherent weakness in relating to my own gender. Men freak me out sometimes, and the company of other men makes me feel small, fragile, ignored. It's easy for me to think I'm less in comparison to men around me, and that's been a staple in my life as far back as I can remember. But I've only come to recognize it within the last year. Now, it's easy for me to approach this and say it's due to toxic masculinity, that I'm afraid of other men because I think that all of them exhibit toxic qualities. Yet the community of men around me aren't like that. Not explicitly, at least. The community of men that I am often surrounded by are mostly church brothers. They're good men that have encouraged me in prayer, scripture, and wisdom, and that keeps me focused on what's important in life, Jesus Christ. Those are wonderful things, and yet I still battle a struggle to trust other men, to feel comfortable around them, to feel invited into their community. There are inappropriate ways in which I can approach this. I could simply look at this supposed symptom I experience, this fear of men, and say, rather than fear them, I'll overcome them. I'll assert myself above them through whatever means seem necessary, and I've definitely exhibited that before. I'm a custodian of my church, and one week I knew there was a men's breakfast coming up, I was going to attend it, but I thought it would be funny to draw this really buff muscle builder on the whiteboard and add patronizing comments on it, like, how tough are ya? Check out my gains! How much you lift, bruh! And my most hated phrase ever, are you man enough? A phrase that showed up in the church newsletter a few months back advertising the monthly men's breakfast. I felt convicted near immediately, and I erased the text and simply wrote that he was going to be the unofficial mascot for the men's breakfast. His name was Randy Richard, by the way. Some of you might get a kick out of that. The breakfast went well, and everyone liked the drawing, my dad of course finding the pun pretty hilarious while everyone else was aloof. But at the end of the meeting, a good friend of mine helped me clean the room and approached me about the drawing, asking if there was something sinister going on. I confess that initially I had drawn it to antagonize the whole ordeal, to tease other men who I felt alienated by for no other reason than I am who I am. Why did I do that? It's been a while since then, and while I'll draw our mascot Randy Richard again, because people seem to like him, I've come to realize how backwards my attitude was. I thought that the best way to fight something that oppressed me was to overpower it through passive aggression. It was toxic. In reality, I was seeking to suppress my own fears of being around men, my insecurities. The fact that I'm an eccentric character who likes to read, watch movies, write fiction, and podcast episodes, doesn't work out, doesn't play or watch sports, and is incredibly emotional. And rather than embracing God-given qualities of mine that can be used to worship the Lord, such as writing to his glory, engaging the culture of cinema to his glory, and expressing my emotions through heartfelt empathy with my wife, friends, and others, I felt they were less and sought to inhabit a new way of expressing myself, a form of masculinity that is filled with toxicity and hatred, hiding behind strength because I'm aware of how weak I am. A lot of the art of self-defense is about tackling this conundrum, whether it's fighting against real and honest misogyny, apathy, or anything else prevalent in toxic masculinity, or fighting against something that isn't there which can breed the aforementioned qualities. The fight against deeply rooted issues can get complicated, violent, hateful, and occasionally contributes to the very thing you seek to prevail over. What's nice about Riley Stern's approach is that he isn't afraid to have fun while also dealing with this issue. I think that's an important approach, even if people might feel confused about the tone he has in this film. Some might think that it's not appropriate to have fun while also tackling such a prevalent cultural problem, such as toxic masculinity. There's an argument to be made there, but also, I think Riley approaches this difficult topic in a way that, as mentioned before, is self-aware. It's comical because it breaks down problems into very simple, obvious phrases that bring to light how dumb sin can be sometimes. It's sinister, evil, cunning, but if you get right down to what sin is, it's really, really stupid. And it's important to know that the deepest root cause of all these problems is our sin. It's our rejection of the good things that God commands we do. And it's not a matter of commanding us not to do things we want, although sometimes we want to sin. It's a matter of saying, those things will hurt you, hurt others, and ultimately separate you from me. But we know the fight against sin isn't as simple as, don't do that thing, and then leaving it at that. It requires an appropriate understanding of how an individual's sin takes form. Take the men's breakfast, for example. I showed a toxic attribute, a passive aggression that is infectious, demeaning, disrespectful. I felt weak, and to overcome my weakness, I decided to try something I found equally comical, a hyper-realistic depiction of a bodybuilder drawn with dry erase marker, and aggressive, making call-outs that I felt would undermine other attendants. I was a jerk. And a friend of mine knew exactly what was going on, so he approached me afterward. He not only called me out on what I'd done, but also asked me hard questions. He asked me why I felt I had to do that. He asked me if anyone in the room was even like that person I was trying to make a parody of. And then he asked me if there was something more going on. These questions are important because it's not enough to simply say, Stop it, Mel. The reality is that, in my action, I simultaneously showed a part of my heart that is bitter while creating a footstool for Sin to dig into my heart, build some Ikea furniture, and make himself at home. It would begin to fester and grow in ways I wouldn't expect, leading me to further toxic behavior in the company of other men. There's a root issue that caused these problems, and it's important to recognize that the toxic masculinity I exhibited was a symptom of something deeper. Yes, it's bad, and yes, at its very core, it was sinful, but there's something in the middle that must be excavated to truly understand why I did what I did. And the only way to truly understand these issues and bring them into the light is community with others. And that's something important to mention, as Casey Davies has no friends in the art of self-defense. That's an intentional writing choice, too. Riley Stearns is very much aware of this, and there's even a few jokes played to that effect. It brings to question whether Casey Davies may react to certain situations differently if he had close relationships, if he had people that encouraged him that he was fine the way he was. These experiences remind me how damaging my own thoughts can be, how ultimately I was doing this based on what I thought. I thought I was less in the presence of other men, when simply that's not true, and I'm not more either. I'm me, and sometimes I'm not comfortable with being me. It's that simple. And it's important to not only find the bad seed in my heart and tear it out, but to plant new seeds of goodness in its place. To do all this, I need to be known by someone so that they can step in and help me. I need to be engaged so I can trust the person who is helping me. And I need to be educated so I can make the necessary steps to change. And in this case, the education would be me leaning on 1 Corinthians 3.21-4.7, through 4, 7, a wonderful passage in which Paul writes to the church in Corinth amidst division. I often return to this passage as the months go by, and the key part of this passage I'd like to look at is chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Paul writes, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Although this passage has to do with a quarrel between church division, a key aspect of this passage we're focusing on is the fact that the writer Paul is little worried about what others think of him, nor his own thoughts on himself, but is leaning on what God thinks of him and his outreach to make peace with the church in Corinth. In the men's ministry situation, I show that it isn't what people think of me, but what I think people think of me that bothers me. In other words, it's a confusing way of saying, I'm self-conscious. This insecurity has led me to do stupid things, from treating people horribly, not getting work done because I think nobody cares, or drawing dumb pictures of buff men on a church whiteboard. See, sin is so stupid. Imagine if I simply cared what God thought of me. God, in his infinite grace, loved me before I was saved. Loved me enough to send his son Jesus Christ to die for me so that I would become saved. As I come to know this more and more each day, I lean on it because it shows how even when I was unlovable, God loved me enough to die for me. When comparing that love to the love or lack of it that I feel I receive from those around me, there's no competition. And if God loves me that much, what reason do I have to be insecure about myself? What reason do I have to feel like I am less than other people because of the way God has made me? As I learn about His love for me... I seek to love him back, listening to his word and worshipping him in everything I do. But that's easier said than done. So I suppose my takeaway with The Art of Self-Defense is a personal one. Despite how much I enjoyed this film on a technical and intellectual level, like Mandy, I stepped away from this film like I had peered through a mirror. It's a toss-up whether you'll have the same experience as I did, but it's dry humor, endless wit. Excellent physical performances and self-awareness make it charming to a fault. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen The Art of Self-Defense, what did you think of it? If you're listening on CinematicDoctrine.com, let me know in a comment below, or shoot me an email to CinematicDoctrine at gmail.com. And if you're on Letterboxd, I have a list compiling every movie I've reviewed on Cinematic Doctrine with direct links to those episodes. In case you missed it, both guest episodes I appeared for are online. In one episode, I talked with a fellow podcaster about Under the Silver Lake, The Nice Guys, and The Black Dahlia. and the other episode, I talked about the first three Resident Evil movies, which were about as bad as you would expect. Be sure to check those episodes out. Also, if you'd like to support the show, jump on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook page and be sure to follow for updates on episodes, movie news, and my usual shenanigans. You can also leave a review for Cinematic Doctrine on your respective podcast app. Again, all of this will be available in the show notes. Next time, I'll be reviewing Lulu Wang's The Farewell. Until then, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck! We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Doctrine. link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk, so get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.